Father, we're thankful that you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ the assets that we need to live the Christian life. And we pray that you would illuminate our hearts to these principles and to these blessings that you have given to us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is uh, the handout tonight is the last one. Uh, for the spring, and it's actually the last one of the course. There's one more chapter that we're going to cover in the fall that has a lot of detail and backgrounds, which we won't get to now, but it'll be the uh, rapture of the church. But what we're working on is the um, um, outline of the church age. We've covered the church age, some of the topics in it, with the idea in mind that if you map the overall motion of the Holy Spirit's teaching from Pentecost to the present hour, there's a logical development that occurs in church history. So having looked at that, having looked at the fact that the church is not the same as Israel, it's not a replacement for Israel, the church, unlike Israel, is not a nation, it's a multicultural entity defined doctrinally by those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not defined racially. Israel is defined racially. The church is not defined racially. So the two entities are not the same. And therefore, when we come now to sanctification, uh, we see differences that crop up. We're not going to go through all the differences, but we're going to look at some categories here. Now, these are the same categories, actually, that we covered back two or three years ago when we were working with David. Uh, when we worked before, we worked with David, we worked with the conquest and settlement period in the book of Judges. And uh, it's just an, a way I have of kind of summarizing the areas of sanctification. And one of the ways of looking at it is on page 105 the notes, we're looking at the phases of sanctification. See, that doesn't work. Um, and by phases, we mean thinking of it in terms of past present, and future. And we can orient our Christian life to, inside that framework. So there are these different phases. And what we want to do when we think of the past is to think of becoming a Christian. So the past looks at the Christian life from the standpoint of what was given to us at a point in time when we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, when that happened, lots of different things happened. None of, many of which we, we really aren't, you know, we aren't aware of. You have to go to the Word of God to find out what was going on there. But the things that happened, besides the, under the broad name, somebody got saved, uh, were some specific things. And we've already covered some of those because we've organized this by the, what the Father did, what the Son does, and what the Holy Spirit does. Some of what they do are not just past, but also present and also future. So if we go back to the diagram, uh, let's see, I think that was on page 84, that that was the one where we summarized on one, one figure, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this is what constitutes 
becoming a Christian. And it's a lot broader than what people normally envision becoming a Christian is like. So, the Father, we said, there on that diagram you'll see He foreknows, He chooses or He calls, He um, justifies, He predestinates, He calls, He justifies, and then we said that He glorifies, and he, we added a sixth one, He disciplines. That really isn't part of the past, that's continuing the present. The, the glorification here is partly through regeneration, but it's also uh, future, so we'll kind of separate that. And look at these four. Those four things are things that we become aware of at the time, or we should become aware of, at the time we trust in Christ. Because God, for all eternity, has foreknown us, He has predestinated us, He's called us, and He's justified us. And that is the work of the particular person in the Trinity, the Father. Then, we said in the Son, in diagram, figure 6, page 84, we said that the Son historically lived a perfect life on earth and demonstrated what righteousness and holiness looks like by a human being. And we said a year or two ago, when we were working with the person of Christ, we said that that refutes this idiom that you hear, not an idiom, but it's a, it's a um, proverb you kind of hear in our everyday language, to err is human. That's not true. There was one human that didn't err, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you hear that little proverb, you can say there's an exception to that one. A nice kind of introductory thing for conversation. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again, and therefore created a pathway uh, out of the mortal world. He had life in eternal life, and He gives that at the moment of salvation to us, to our souls, uh, by regeneration and so on. He makes intercession for us. He's the head of the church, and He judges. So, as far as the past goes, we can at least include the righteousness, His death and resurrection, the eternal life that we get, and those constitute things that He has done for us up to that point. The Holy Spirit, remember, that's the easy one to remember, ribs plus spiritual gift plus um, intercession. And these five things are things that He does at the point of salvation. So, a lot of work happens at the point of salvation. And it's invisible. We don't sense it but it's there. And you say, well, why don't we sense it? Why doesn't God make it so we detect it? Well, it's because of the nature of history. Uh, if you were a Jew uh, and you were born in the 8th century B.C., you would not physically sense the Exodus. You wouldn't physically sense uh, the call of Abraham. But in fact... Your destiny is controlled by those things that happened, those events. Your destiny as a Jew. You're marked out as a particular human being with a particular destiny controlled by the Abrahamic covenant, controlled by the Mosaic covenant, controlled by the Davidic covenant. That's all your inheritance. 
and that happens to you, whether you feel it or not. And so it's the same thing in the church age. So all these things are the, the basis for sanctification. And you'll notice, if you look through these, there's not one of them, not one of them, that we add to by human merit. They are all independent of human merit. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter how intelligent or how stupid we are. It doesn't matter what race we are. It doesn't matter what sex we are. It doesn't matter all of those things because these things are given to us at the point of salvation by God. They're an asset that is given to us. And we can either spend that asset, utilize it, or waste it. But the point is, it's given at the point of salvation. Then we go come to the present. And so we're going to move on because we mentioned this is kind of like review from last time. So now what we want to do is we want to concentrate on present sanctification. And uh, what constitutes that? Well, we've already said if we look at those things that the Father does, the Son does, and the Holy Spirit does, these things are ongoing in the present. So we think of the present as that period of our lives from that time that we accepted Christ until the time we die or the rapture if we happen to live in the rapture generation so that's the period of our lifetime and during that period what happens now if you look at the chart a moment you'll see why the Protestant Reformation was involved here because if you look up here you see the father justified and he justified at the point of salvation. That's past. That's not part of the present. We don't get more justified. There's no human merit, human good work that solidifies that justification action any more than it was solidified a millisecond after it happened at the point of salvation. So, so now in the present, what happens? Well, grace doesn't stop. God the Holy Spirit continues, the Son continues, and the Father continues. Well, what are some of the things that shape, control, uh, that affect us daily in our Christian life? Well, let's go back to the Father. What is one thing the Father does? We'll get into that tonight a little bit more. We're going to explain that a little bit more. The Father disciplines. And this goes on in our lives because unlike John Dewey, uh, he doesn't believe that children are unfallen. And he disciplines us as a father who disciplines his children. That's going on all the time because he is our father and he runs his family his way. We're part of his family and we will be disciplined as we, as we grow. So that's one thing the father does. We also found out the Lord Jesus Christ is constantly, according to Romans 8, making intercession for us. And that is important because Satan is accusing us all the time before the throne. The book of Revelation tells us that. The book of Job tells us that. So it's not just that our conscience convicts us of sin. It's not that we feel like we're unworthy. In fact, from a historical point of view, were it not for imputed righteousness, we are unholy and we are guilty. So that transaction of, con of, of acknowledging us before God's throne over against satanic accusation is the job of God the Son. 
And that's the advocacy. That's why in 1 John 2, 1, if any man sin, what does it say? We have a what? With the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, a defense attorney with the Father. So, Jesus Christ hasn't stopped working. His cross work is finished, but his intercession work isn't. That's continuing, 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 continuing. It's happening right now. Somewhere, wherever the throne of God is, and by the way, we can't get abstruse and overly Greek thinking about this. The Lord Jesus Christ tonight is dwelling in his humanity at a point in space and time because he's a creature in his humanity. And therefore, his resurrection body is located somewhere tonight. And it, that location is the throne room of God, according to the book of Revelation. So wherever that is, inside or outside the universe, that's where this intercession is happening. And it's going on in a two-way conversation between God the Son, God the Father, and then we have Satan putting in his two cents. So we have Satan down here. Satan is making an accusation. The Lord Jesus Christ is making intercession. It's a dynamic thing. It's not just static. Then we have the Lord Jesus Christ is H, the head of the church. That means he is directing his body, just like our brain directs our hands, our fingers, our feet. So the Lord Jesus Christ is directing his church. And we've seen evidences of this down through church history, how Jesus directs his church. One of the things we've learned, isn't it, that he starts in the book of Acts, continues through the first few centuries of the church, goes all the way up through the Middle Ages, goes all the way through the Protestant Reformation, goes all the way to the last 300 years. The Lord Jesus directs his church slightly differently in each generation because history is changing. So this is a dynamic thing. It's an active, living, dynamic thing. The church uh, in the last two or three hundred years has all of a sudden exploded in the sense of missions. That wasn't true. They had some missions before, but that's new. The church is moving into areas of eschatology. Why is that? Because we're, we're facing false, pagan, total ideas of where history is going. Communism was one of them. Islam is another one. Um, Nazism, the Third Reich, that whole thing was another one. So in the last two centuries, we've had this emphasis throughout the unbelieving world on unbelieving anti-Christian eschatologies. And the Lord Jesus is head of the church. He's teaching the church. He is making the Holy Spirit teaching us what we need to know for our era of church history. Then, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will save that judging for later. The Holy Spirit now is another one. His intercession now, unlike this one, is between him and the Son, according to Romans 8. So that's another conversation that is going on constantly. And the subject of that conversation isn't our status before God as far as righteousness, so much as he is helping our infirmities with groanings that cannot be uttered. And meaning that he is dealing with our individual and personal sanctification because we don't know enough to make intelligent prayer requests. And if our sanctification were dependent upon our wonderful prayer, we'd never get to first base. The only reason we're advancing in our life is because somebody better than us is praying for us, and that's the Holy Spirit. So that's what's some of the stuff that's going on in the present. Now, you've got to be careful here. 
You can't mix what's going on in the present with what went on in the past. What isn't happening today is that we're not being re-justified. We're not being born again, again, and again, and again. All that was regeneration. So, that's why these phases of sanctification are good classifying devices. So, when you read in the New Testament, or you're studying the Bible, and you're sitting there reading, and it says certain things to you about what a Christian is, what the Holy Spirit has done, the thought ought to occur in your mind, is this past, present, or future? Is this sanctification past? Is this sanctification? These are theological categories, just like the tense of a verb, past, present, or future. Except this, this isn't grammatical, this is theological. And it's a good question. You don't get anything out of the Bible except you question it. You ask questions of the text. And these are the questions you ask. Are we dealing here with a past sanctification? Are we dealing with presently going on sanctification? Or are we dealing with something in the future as far as our sanctification? All right, let's look at the future. What things happen in the future? Well, up here, the Father glorifies. That isn't done until the body is resurrected. We are not totally glorified until we are resurrected in our bodies. And that's the work of the Father. The Father's going to take care of that, but not now. Then we have the Son, and He has a little J out there, and He judges. So those are at least two things that we can talk about the future. We have to be evaluated by the Lord Jesus Christ as a peer. And if you look on page 107, we give you some text for that. So let's turn to one of those. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because this is talking about a judgment. There's many different kinds of judgments in the Bible. Every time we see a judgment in the Bible, we cannot conclude that it's always the judgment on the world at the end times. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, what Paul is saying here is he's referring to a future phase of sanctification where the total value of our lives is determined. Another word, or is, is recognized, put it that way. It's determined down through history, but our personal life. But at this judgment, judgment of believers, because one notice what it says, it says each man's work will become evident for the day will show, show it because it's to be revealed with fire. Fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. So there's one very explicit thing that says this is not a salvation judgment. This is a rewards-type judgment. Not the same. can't conclude hastily. Every time you see the word judge, that's that final judgment. This is talking about an evaluation so that when we start off, so to speak, in the eternal realm, we will have our, our, our um, temporal lives evaluated. And there'll be surprises. Things we thought were great probably turn out not to be, and things we thought weren't so hot maybe were. And, and that's up to the Lord to evaluate that. Now, the closest you can come to it now is going up against the standards of Scripture and trusting that you see the Scripture clearly enough to do that and not that. But in the final analysis, he has the last word, and that's what's going on here. 
And it's explained in the other verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10 and following, that the person doing this judging, doing the evaluating, is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Okay. That's the phases of sanctification. And you can talk about uh, sanctification in terms of phases. And this is most useful in thinking in terms of a text. You pro- probably the most useful part of breaking things down in this trifold categorization is as a Bible study tool to think about what does this text say. And if you'll do that, it'll, it'll save you from some confusion. All right, next, we're going to look at the aim of sanctification. This has not changed, but we do want to remind ourselves of a passage in Hebrews that if you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 2, this is something that we covered when we went through the life of Christ, but it's always good to remember this because sanctification is often thought of negatively. Sanctification is often thought of as getting rid of sin. And uh, we have, historically, we've had um, emphasis at certain times in church history among certain groups of, quote, separation from the world. Um, The problem with this is it's not possible to separate from the world. We're in the world, whether we like it or not. We breathe crummy air. We live in a fallen universe. We live in a fallen society. Uh, We live in bodies that are under a death sentence. Uh, We live with souls that share the fallen nature of Adam. So, I mean, how do you separate from the world? Well, what these people try to do, and you know, it's the right motive. They're trying to say there ought to be a difference between our lives and the world's lives. And so they're trying to say that, but in, in doing it, they often lock up on a few, if you do this and don't do this, do this and don't do this, and so on. Um, I remember uh, almost a generation ago in New England, the legalism among some of the fundamentalist churches was so bad. I mean, if a woman dared to wear lipstick, I mean, you were a fallen witch. Um, I mean, really, if you played cards, that was a major sin. And it just, they pick out these little things. And what's, you can always find interesting things about this. Because where you have these legalistic things, usually if you look at them carefully enough, there are always things that are, any unbeliever could do. It doesn't require the power of the Holy Spirit to not play cards or comb your hair with a fan or something. That's not, that doesn't require, unbelievers can mimic that. So, the motive was originally good. Just look at the separate, be not conformed to the world is what we're trying to say here. And it gets somehow awkwardly twisted and perverted into a legalistic set of do's and don'ts. And of course there's do's and don'ts. But the point is, sanctification is more than just putting away sin. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, is a stunning verse. Because this verse says that Jesus Christ in his humanity had to be sanctified. Isn't that an interesting use of the verb sanctify? Verse 10, It is fitting him from whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus Christ had to undergo sanctification. And Jesus Christ, we know, didn't have a sin nature. 
Well, then, sanctification cannot be just getting rid of sin. It can't be just a subtractive process. Apparently, it's an additive process as well as a subtractive process. So, the aim of sanctification, we have to think about that a moment. The sanctification has a plus and has a minus. For Jesus, it only had a plus, and that was he learned, learned obedience. It did not come with a virgin birth. Jesus learned obedience. And he learned it by obeying. He chose to obey. He had just as much temptation as we do, but he chose to obey. So it was active choosing. He chose, 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 and he learned and learned and learned and learned and learned. Very rapid learner, because he because he didn't sin, didn't have, get all screwed up, so he learned very rapidly. But he learned, and the, that's the point of this verse. And there's a parallel verse I also list, chapter five. If you look over in chapter five, verse seven, of the same of the same um, text, chapter five, verse seven and eight. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, notice this, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus learned, and he learned like so many of us always learn, and that is, we don't learn until the heat comes on, until the pressure comes on, until some disaster falls, and then we learn. And that's how, that's severity, learning the hard way. Well, Jesus didn't learn the hard way in the sense he, he was disobedient, but it does say he learned through sufferings. So, Jesus had to learn obedience. Well, we have to not only learn obedience, but we have another problem. We have to unlearn disobedience. So, we have, because of our fallen natures, we've got the other side of the story. And that's why, for example, in Romans 8, it talks about mortify the deeds of the flesh and that sort of thing. You, and you, you know, the verb there is to kill. It's, it's to mortify, put to death, the patterns of sin. Well, why does it use that language? And theologians have debated about it. But it's interesting to think about in terms of what we now know about our central nervous system. And that is that in our body, we have to, we have to practice doing something. I think it's somebody once said, it takes seven to 8,000 repetitions of something to ingrain it so it really becomes automatic you can see this in athletic training the athlete trains and trains and trains now why, why does he bother to train obviously he must be bothered to train because he's getting better because people have learned down through the centuries that you can train yourself and the more you train the more automatic it becomes so what does that say it says you're kind of programming the system Every time you do something, you're programming the system. It's like a self-learning computer. Wouldn't that be great? Um, a, a, pro, pro, uh, a computer that actually learns. Now, I know artificial intelligence, and they're saying, yeah, it's very artificial intelligence is sometimes artificial stupidity, you know, if you've ever worked with it. But the problem is that the pro, they're trying to do with a computer, make it learn things in an elementary way. 
Well, we, in our, with our brain, God-given brain, God-given nervous system, we learn things, and it becomes to the point where we don't have to consciously think. It automatically happens. We walk. Baby doesn't know how to walk. Baby has to learn how to walk. Child learns first how to bicycle, how they fall off the bike 500 times, and then they finally learn how to ride a bike. Well, then you get on a bike, you never think about, gee, am I balancing right? Is my foot in the right place? Am I, am I too far forward? You don't think about that. You just do it. Why? Because it's become automatic. Now, I think the same thing that happens to sin patterns is that when you disobey, disobey, disobey on a certain track, it becomes automatic. And it's very difficult to undo something that we've learned that's been entrained. And that's why sanctification takes time and takes a concerted decision to mortify the deeds of the body by replacing them with some more godly alternative. And it doesn't happen the first time you obey and not do that, or the second time you obey the Word of God and not do that, or the third time you obey the Word of God and not do that. Just like an athlete. It takes dozens and dozens and dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, before it begins to click. So that's, this is no small task here. This takes time. And one of our problems as Americans is we don't like anything that takes more than two and a half minutes. And this is why we wind up taking pills for this and pills for that. You know, amazing, if you read the history of medicine, what doctors did 200 years ago, you know, to listen to the modern person, you'd think the doctors 200 years ago didn't do anything. Doctors 200 years ago knew an awful lot about the human body. They, the Greeks knew about the body. They, they did anatomical studies of the body. They had medicine two or 300 years ago, and, but it was slow acting. Some of those alternative medicine things are still going on today. They're unpopular because they take time. One of the things I was reading about one time was hot and cold therapy on a, on a place in your body that's got a wound or is, is healing. And it's been known for years. And I asked my son, taking medical school, he said, oh yeah, they did that. They covered that in medical history book, page 300, and, you know. And nobody, everybody reads about it, but nobody thinks about it. Well, what is it doing? Well, what it's doing is the heat, expanding the capillaries, expanding the blood in the tissue, then the cold, contracting. You're forcing circulation in the tissue. Healing speeds up. But the problem is it takes time to do it, and then you have to do it every day until the healing takes place. Well, I don't want to do that. Give me a pill. So the pressure is always on for something. And we carry that over into the Christian life. And so instead of pills, we, we got to go to the latest book on the secret of the Christian life. And that's the new book pill. And we're going to read that. And of course, all of while we're reading that, we're not reading the Word of God and don't get into the text of the Word of God. So there's all kinds of things happen here. But the bottom line is, Jesus had to be sanctified. We have to be sanctified. We've got a double problem in that we've got to unlearn as we learn. And the ultimate goal is to love God with all our hearts and minds and souls, the first commandment. And there's no, no quickie way to do it. There's no spiritual pills that happen. It just comes by time and choice. Okay, we'll move on from phases to aim now. We want to go to something else that we're going to spend the rest of the time tonight on. And that is a third way of looking at sanctification. We want to get into some of the text now. I just use the word dimensions. 
Because what I'm trying to distinguish is two kinds, um, two kinds of actions or two dimensions of sanctification. Better to just, I'll just stay with dimensions. Better to say two dimensions. Now let me illustrate what I'm talking about by dimensions. Let's imagine we have a graph, XY graph. Okay, we have some curve like this. That's what you hope your stock portfolio is doing. Except in the last two years, it's been like that. Um, at any given point, the line is going up or down. Over an extended period of time, if x equals time, let's say, over an extensive period of time, you've got growth. Now, the growth is the accumulation of all those little points going up and down, up and down, up and down. The up one's greater than the down one, but that's growth. All right, that's what we mean by one of the dimensions we'll call long-term growth. That focuses on what we normally associate with growth. Is this person growing spiritually, etc., etc.? Is this person a mature Christian? And one of the things the Bible says, an example where growth becomes an operational, practical issue, is what is one of the requirements for holding an office in the church? You don't put babes in leadership positions. That's just, that's the scripture. You don't put, and it's not knocking a young Christian any more than it's saying you don't have a baby go out there and try to earn living doing something. I mean, that's not appropriate for his stage of growth. Well, it's not appropriate for young Christians to be holding offices in the church. It, it does harm to the church, but it does harm to them because they haven't had time to pass through the growth period. And children often do that, particularly children maybe who've been in a home and the parents die. And the poor little kid has to assume the role of a father very early on. He never gets a chance to go through the things a kid grows through. And, and that's a scar that lasts the rest of his life. So, same here. Christians, you can't force the growth. It just takes time. Uh, Lynn and Art work with, with uh, d uh, discipling people who become Christians in prison. It takes time, doesn't it, Lynn? And sometimes it goes on month after month, year after year. Oh, geez. But it happens. Growth happens. And sometimes it happens so slow when you're on the scene you don't see it. Sometimes to see growth, you have to almost leave the place for three or four months, come back and then see the problem. Oh, wow, look what's happened here. So, that's growth. That's one dimension of sanctification. That's what we call the accumulation dimension. But there's another dimension to growth, and I want to concentrate on that tonight, because that's where the choosings happen, and the disobedience happens, and the obedience happens. And this other dimension is, at any given moment, the line is going up or down. We call that the either-or. You know, either, at a given moment... We're doing what God wants us to do, or we're not. So, we have to distinguish those two. And the easiest way of distinguishing them is to think of a verb. Just action word, a verb. Now, verbs 
have different moods in the Bible. They have it in all languages, but for Bible study purposes, we'll talk about two moods so we can get the contrast to what we're talking about. If you are a grammarian, you talk about the indicative mood. A verb in the indicative mood states a fact or something. It's, it's just, the sky is blue. Um, Sue ran down the street. That's a verb that's in the indicative mood. It indicates, indicative, it indicates what in fact is going on. could be fantasy, but it's a fact about the fantasy that's going on. In distinction from an indicative mood verb, there are imperative moods. Get up. Sit down. Go to the store. Come here. Imperatives. Now think about it. How many different kinds of responses can you have to an imperative mood? Two. Binary response. You either you obey it or you disobey it. So implicit in the imperatives is this either orness. So now we want to go to what what looks like as far as either orness. And so one of the places we want to go is over in First John. So let's turn there to that epistle in the end of the New Testament. And we want to deal with um, something we didn't cover back a year or so ago when I used to start the class on Thursday night and we, we take a promise. And we talk about the faith rest drill and we'd say, here's a promise, Romans 8.28, for example, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose, or casting your care upon him for he cares for you. And what we were trying to do there was just get, grab a promise, part of the sanctification process, to remember a promise so that we could apply it. Or remember an attribute of God. God is omnipotent. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and so forth. So whatever the scripture is, that was applying it. Well, now what we want to do is we want to add to that, what we call that faith rest drill, we want to add now another approach. And this is the approach of recovering spiritually. And it's our spiritual first aid. And we're going to use it and use it and use it and use it and use it again. So in 1 John 1, we want to deal with that, and that's with the whole issue of restoration. So what we're talking about now on that curve is we have a, it's going down. We disobeyed the Lord, things are getting kind of crummy, and we want to turn things around. So what happens at that little point, take a microscope and look at that point where things change around. We want to deal with that, and we're going to deal with that as uh, we call it um, uh, conviction, confession, and restoration, I think, when we are dealing with David, David being a key example. We want to look at that now in First John uh, 1. When we talked about fellowship, I think about seven or eight weeks ago we went through First John, and I think, hope I convinced you that it's written to believers, and if it's written to believers and not a mixed congregation, it means the imperatives are imperatives addressed to believers. It means then that believers cannot follow these imperatives, can disobey the imperatives. And so 
the, the cluster of imperatives in this first chapter, 1 John, start in in verse 6. So he, he goes in and he says, he, this is the background, verse 6. He talked about God as light. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. He is in self-appreciation for our sins. Now, there's a series of conditions in this verse. Verse 7 speaks of if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Well, the obvious thing is, what's the, binary, the, the alternate condition is, we don't walk in the light. But he says, if we do walk in the light, the blood of Jesus is, cleanses us from all sin. Now, in verse 7, there's a dilemma that has caused exegetes of this epistle all kinds of problems over the years. And it's that phrase at the end of verse 7, the clause, the verb. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Well, aren't we forgiven when we become Christians? So there's been a, a whole group of, of people who study First John say, therefore, verse 7 must not be referring to Christians either walking in the light or not walking in the light. It must refer to regeneration. It must refer to being saved. And they argue on the basis of the fact that how can it be that if you walk in darkness, you're saying the blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse us from sin? How, what's this, this cleansing thing? Yet, verse 8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So there, that denies perfectionism. Can't be perfectionist. No such thing as a sinless person. Verse 8 says so. If we say we're, we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the cleansing. Now, verse 9 has suffered from the same fate as verse 7 historically. Namely, people see that cleansing on there and they say, oh, if it's cleansing, it's got to be being saved. So, verse 9 must refer to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That was, must be what that confession there means. Well, John is very consistent from his epistles to his Gospels. Let's turn to his Gospels and see how John uses cleansing. And in particular, let's turn to John chapter 13. Same word. One of the principles of Bible study is you look in the immediate context for nuances of meaning. If you can't find it in the immediate context, go to the whole epistle. If you can't find it in the whole epistle, go to other writings by the same author. Not just any other writings, but writings by the same author. So we're going to the gospel written by the same fellow who uses his vocabulary in a very, very similar way. So we turn to John chapter 13. And this is at the Passover feast. 
And Jesus, in verse 4, rises from the supper, lays aside his garments, takes a towel, girded himself about, poured water in the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Now, this was terribly embarrassing for several reasons. It's embarrassing to the disciples because at this point in time, people didn't have paved sidewalks, didn't have paved streets, it was just dirt and dusty streets. So, you know, the, the donkeys go by and defecate and a few other things. You imagine what, what happens when you walk all over this stuff. So, people used to have a custom. When you came in the door, you washed your feet. When you go to Japan, one of the things I saw when I went to Okinawa, first thing you walk into a Japanese house, there's all the shoes. You don't want people walking all over your carpet, your shoes. You take your shoes off. That way they keep the carpet clean. Smart. The Japanese got it, got it knocked there. Reduces the housekeeping load. So they have all the, all the shoes sitting there in the front. Well, now, in this time and era, they had a, a bowl, basin to wash your feet before you came in the house. And you're out there stepping on all the stuff in the street. You don't want to come into the house and track all that junk inside. So you wash your feet. Well, it's interesting that these guys were already in the house. Nobody bothered to wash their feet. And so the Lord Jesus did it. He, he, you know, from the human point of view, you can see what, what you can imagine, what might have happened. Is here's Jesus, and he, he knows the lesson he's going to teach him. And so he looks around and he sees, hmm, you know, it's interesting today. Not, not any guy walked in this room, bothered to wash his feet. So, good lesson. So now I'm going to wash their feet, and I'm going to show them what cleansing means. So now we're going to have a little lesson about getting cleansed from sin by getting our feet washed. So he came to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter reacts, as you remember from the story, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I do, you don't realize now. Watch this now. This is typically Johannine. John's gospel is loaded with this kind of stuff. And every time you see it, what you want to think about is when was the Gospel of John written? It was written long after the other Gospels, wasn't it? It was written deeply into the church. In other words, there's coming a time when you will understand this. The time has already come now for John. He's looking backwards to this event that happened years and years and years and years ago. And he remembers, you know what? When that happened, the Lord told us that eventually we know what he did. Don't know all about it now, but we'll know. So hereafter in verse 7 refers to after Pentecost, after the cross, after all that gets through. And we're now in the church age. You'll understand it then. Well, Peter, not taking the hint that it's going to take some time to learn it, and just, you know, quiet Peter, just, just listen and watch. He has to open his mouth. And, of course, typical of Peter in the Gospels, apparently had two mouths and one ear, never shall you wash my feet. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me, said Jesus. Now, here are, are sections in the Greek text that were rooted in the Old Testament text. So we want to go a little excursus here on the exegesis of this verse. In John 13, verse 8, 
two verbs are used. One verb in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, the verb to wash in verse 8, when he says, if I do not wash you, you have no part, is the verb that means to bathe. I mean, verb to be, yeah, this is the verb to bathe. And this is the idea of a complete and total washing. So if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Lord, not my feet only, but also my head and my hands. Jesus said, uh, excuse me, verse 10 is the one. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. Now, the new translations have distinguished those two verbs. The verb, first verb is bathe. The second verb is to wash the feet. One is luo and the other is nipto. And these two verbs, we'll, we'll put them on the board here, wash and bathe, are true in the Greek but not in the Hebrew. Now, I'm going to take you out into the Old Testament where this cleansing thing really got started under the Mosaic Law Code. We're going to look at the Hebrew text. But what's interesting is when in the 2nd, 3rd century, whenever, when the so-called LXX, the 70, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament was translated, this is a version which is very, very important to the study of Greek because it was this version that shows how Jews in Jesus' day and immediately before Jesus' day understood the Hebrew text. They had certain interpretations of that Hebrew text and they brought it over when they translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. So if the same Hebrew word is translated by two different Greek words, that difference in translations tells you what those translators thought about that Hebrew verb. In other words, in certain contexts they translate it one way, in other contexts they translate it another way. And the difference, if, you, if it's rigorously and consistently applied, tells you that Jews in that day, they had a nuance to that Hebrew verb. So even though the Hebrew only had one verb, the Greek has two verbs. That Hebrew one verb had two different meanings that was used selectively. And just like we have words, and we use them selectively. Now we want to go over to where this came from. So let's turn to the washing under the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And so we'll turn to Exodus chapter 29. I'm going to go back into the law code, which was part of the temple rituals, where, and the reason we go to this particular area of the law code is this was the cleansing that was necessary in order that they dwell and walk in the light. What light? What was the light in the Old Testament of the presence of God? It's the Shekinah glory. And where did the Shekinah glory dwell but in the tabernacle? And what was the issue about light and dwelling in the light? The high priest going into that tabernacle. So, if we turn to how the high priest was cleansed, maybe we can get a little tip on what the translators were doing, where they started this business of translating this Hebrew word to cleanse two different ways. So, let's go back to Exodus 29, uh, verse 1, or verse 4, I guess it is, 29, verse 4. 
Yes. Here is the here's a high priest coming into office. And the priest has got to be cleansed. What would happen, by the way, if he wasn't cleansed and tried to just trot in? He'd be pulled out because he'd be dropped dead. God would not permit people who were unclean, ceremonial unclean, to, to come into that place. And you say, well, what's the deal? Because he was teaching something. He's saying that I am a holy God and you just don't waltz in with all your crud in my presence. Sorry. High voltage here. Put on an insulator. Here is my holiness. And so in Exodus 29... Here's the installment. You notice verse 1, verse 2. It's all these priestly things that are going on uh, in in this section of Exodus. Now, in verse 4, here is the use of that Hebrew word to wash. And it's translated in the Septuagint as the word to bathe. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and you will wash them, bathe them with water from head to toe. This was total washing. Then you will take the garments, you'll put on the tunic and so forth and set the turban on. They had to be completely washed from head to toe. That's bathe. That's the word that is used in John 13 when Jesus says, he who has been bathed needs not wash except his feet. Okay? Well, now that we're in Exodus, let's see if we can find a a use of the word wash the feet. In verse 4, what have we just noticed? There's an instance of the verb to take a bath. Total immersion. Now, if you'll turn to the next chapter in Exodus, we deal with this issue of washing the feet and cleansing. Uh, This is in Exodus 30, verse 18. This is uh, out in front of the tabernacle. He had a place. Once the guy had been washed, he was installed as the priest. Now, verse 18, 19, and 20. Say, before he goes into service, look what happens. You will take a labor of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it when they enter the tent of meeting. They shall wash with water that they may not die. But notice it's not a bathing. It's just washing their hands and their feet. So there's clearly two different kinds of washing going on here in the, the ceremonial aspects of the Levitical system. Well, the Septuagint translators picked up on this. And that's why when they turned the Hebrew into Greek, they made this, this distinction. Now we come over back to John with that background. And we look once again at John 13. What Jesus is doing here, and particularly in John 13 verse 10, is he picks up this difference in these Greek verbs. And he makes a very, very fascinating and interesting point. He says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, not all of you, meaning Judas Iscariot, of course. So, the Lord Jesus Christ distinguishes two kinds of cleansing, doesn't he? 
Ah, so it's, every time you see the verb cleanse, doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be salvation cleansing. It can be temporal cleansing. How do we know that? Because the ceremonial law structures that way. So now we have cleansing number one and cleansing number two. This is cleansing number one, cleansing number two. Cleansing number one, salvation cleansing. God forgives us our sins, credits Christ's righteousness to our account over an instant of time at the point of regeneration and justification. But cleansing too is that which occurs during time because we pick up, we have personal sin that happens that has to be dealt with. And fellowship with God is broken. Just as Aaron the high priest, Aaron and his sons, couldn't go into the tabernacle without cleansing, so what Jesus is arguing is that if you're dirty... The fellowship is ruptured here. And all this stuff that he's teaching them in John 13 is preparatory to what chapter? 14, when he's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit. And what's he talking about in verse chapter 15? Turn over to chapter 15. He's talking about, here's one of these imperatives now, that requires an either-or response. He's talking about abiding. Now, this abiding, we either abide or we don't abide. And it's given to the disciples. So, very quickly, we see this abide thing. Abide in me, he says. Remain in me, in fellowship with me. In verse 10 of John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father and abide in his love. So, he's telling them, because listen to who the audience is. Think about who, who's hearing John 15. Not a mixed multitude here. He's talking about disciples. So he's saying to these men, abide in me. So this is John's background. This is the vocabulary of the author of 1 John. So now we go back to 1 John, because we've looked a little bit at least, just in a preliminary way, at what he reported about this a wonderful occasion in the life of the Lord Jesus. So now he picks up on this and he's talking about cleansing. Well, in verse 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 1, we've already argued that this epistle is not written to a mixed multitude. It's written to believers, just as Jesus ministered to believers in John 13, 14, and 15. So therefore, what is the cleansing that is going on here? It's the cleansing of fellowship. And John's issue, as he says in verse 1 and verse 3, he says, I'm proclaiming this, that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in order to have fellowship, there has to be cleansing. And verse 9 gives the condition. The condition is, if we confess our sins, which gets us back to the model that we saw in the Old Testament, same thing with David. So, when we have this growth thing and we go into a spiral down, what is the recovery point? The recovery point is confession before the Father of our sin. Now, this is repeated in dispensation after dispensation, and we want to... I'll give you the verses because we're running out of time tonight, but just take these verses down, and this is a verse chain where this confession issue happens again and again and again. It's not just in 1 John 1.9. 
it happened, going back in the Old Testament, I'll try to give these in the order in which the Old Testament books are written. I always like to give verse chains in the same order so you don't go flipping back and forth. So I've, I've rearranged the verses according to the canonical sequence, not according to the order temporarily. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6. There's an occasion. Psalm 32, verse 5. That's the second one. Third one, Psalm 38, verse 18. Fourth one, Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. Fifth one, Proverbs 28, 13. Another one, Daniel 9, verse 4. Some don't use the word confess, but you'll see in the context that's what it's talking about. Now, this uh, next one, everybody should know because every communion service, this one is trotted out. 1 Corinthians 11:31. If we judge ourselves, we would not be what? We would not be judged. So, that, what's that talking about? It's talking about evaluating ourselves, finding out if we've sinned or not, and if we have, we confess it to the Father. And 1 Peter 4:17. So the confession is there, not because there's something meritorious in the confession. The confession is, mer- is not meritorious. The confession is just the turning point where the sin is acknowledged. And that's what God the Father wants us to acknowledge, is when we sin. Now, we have to understand what the word confess means here. It's, it's the same word that if you were in a trial, what does it mean if in a trial when it says someone confesses to a crime? Now, they may confess with great emotion, terribly sorry that they did it, or they may be the kind of personality that isn't too emotional and says, yeah, I did that. I'm ashamed of myself and I did that. But they're not crying down to their shoes uh, tears. That's a person variable. And the problem we have is that we take something that's person variable and miss out on the guts of the thing. Now, the whole point of confession, maybe it's the wrong word, but it it has religious connotations that I'm trying to get away from here tonight. The word confession means that I recognize factually on the basis of Scripture. In other words, I'm not doing this to get merit before God. That's what I'm I'm trying to break out of this. Confession has acquired a false meaning, particularly in some areas of Christianity where the confession will say the confessional intensity, the emotional intensity of the confession, somehow is thought to give merit. That this generates merit. And on the basis of that generated merit, because of the intensity of my emotions, that therefore, that's why God forgives me. And that's wrong. God doesn't forgive on the basis of your tears or anything else. God doesn't get forgive on the basis of human emotion. God forgives because we acknowledge that we are truly guilty of that infraction. And that's what he wants us to admit. And I've often wondered, why does God want us to do that? And In one sense, it's so tremendously simple. But what, in another sense, it's not tremendously simple, because you know very well that when we get out in the toolies, the last thing we want someone to do is point out where we are. And we don't want the Holy Spirit doing it. We don't want somebody else doing it. And so the problem is the Holy Spirit has to keep pounding us on the head 
doing, maybe saying, okay, you know, you want to walk on a Thule trip here? Long walk and a short walk, and I'll catch you. And so, you know, that process happens. But somewhere, somewhere on down the line, ding dong, light goes on, oh yeah, okay. All right, game's over. Now I'll confess I've done that. I'll confess that I, you know, turned against you there at that point. So that's the confession. But the confession itself doesn't have any more merit than believing in the Lord Jesus Christ had merit. God didn't save you because of the you just believed so hard. And that, heart, that intensity of belief was, it was got points with him. Rather, faith is what Francis Schaeffer used to say is the empty hand reading out to receive what God is giving it. And in confession, it's the admission factually and objectively of true guilt before God that may or may not have emotions with it. That's not the point. The point is that the confession meets the condition of 1 John 1, 9. And the idea here is that if this is us as believers and this is God and God is righteous and forgive me for being five minutes late here tonight, but we are over. God's righteous and just. I'll be done in just a minute. God is righteous and just. What has he given to us in the person of Jesus Christ that maintains the pipeline between himself and us? Let's think about that for a moment. Imputed righteousness, right? God imputed Christ's righteousness to you and to me at the point of salvation. Now, because of that, God looks down on us. And what does he see? All the little gooey things that we do? Or does he see that we are credited with Christ's righteousness? He sees that we are credited with Christ's righteousness. And the reason for the pipeline and a blessing is not because of something we do. It's because of something he did for us. And because he gave us Christ's righteousness, he imputed and credited that to our account. That's the basis of the relationship. What he wants us to do is to confess our sin so that we acknowledge. It's it's a teaching device in one sense. It's a teaching device because in order to confess our sin, what does that remind us of? Guilt. And what does guilt remind us of? The finished work of the Lord Jesus. So confession, although it looks simple is actually a profound thing that drives us right back to the gospel. It forces us to go back again and again and again to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And there's no other thing that can do this. You know, he could have said, jump, jump through hoops 500 times or hit yourself. And people do this in religious areas. Whip themselves 150 times if you sin this and do it 250 times if you do that and 300 times if you do that. And and it's baloney. If you did it a thousand times, that doesn't have enough merit to forgive. What forgives is he wants us to admit and go back to the cross again and again and again and again. And it's that simple. And people make a big thing out of confession and all the rest of the stuff. And I mean, come on. Let's look at it in its simplicity here. The priests went and they washed their hands and their feet. And that was it. And then they went in and did their thing. 
And God wouldn't let him do it. He made an issue out of it. Yeah, it's only washing your hands and your feet, but I'm going to make an issue out of it. Well, you mean it's just confessed sins? Yes, but I'm going to make an issue out of it. So that's where it stands, and we'll go finish that off next week and um, finish with the enemies of sanctification. Father, we thank you that you have this gracious plan of salvation, that it does not depend in any way upon our personal emotions. It does not depend upon our human merit. It depends completely on your sovereign grace. And we're so thankful that we have been chosen and that you have blessed us with all of these assets in the person of Jesus. We ask that you would keep our hearts quick and alert, that when we drift, when we get out of fellowship, when we go carnal, that you would quickly remind us of that fact and that we would be drawn to confess our sins and be restored once again. In Christ's name, amen. We'll, uh, we'll have a few minutes here. It's kind of late, but we'll have a few minutes of questions. Yes. I really appreciate what you said about that whole area of confession and emotions really have nothing to do with it because I've had a dietic number years ago taught me that regardless of what your emotions are doing, you can always go to the Lord and confess. And that is so freeing. You know, even when I'm <laughs> the shower is the place I confess to those. You know, But you see, oh yeah. Yeah. The the problem with emotions. I mean, we're not denying that there can't be bona fide emotions. In most cases, there is. The problem with with emphasizing them is that somehow they always get construed that the emotions are merit generating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. And but see, I think why one of the problems that we have in this area of confession, and I think it's going to plague the next generation a lot more, is that the whole presumption in understanding true guilt is that there's an absolute reference point, and to a generation who has been raised in relativism. In pluralism, they're going to have a real difficult time understanding what guilt is because what they understand and what they call guilt tends to be, I wasn't true to my own convictions. Well, no, that's not guilt. Um, that would be like uh, uh, a criminal saying, well, you know, gee, I just, I murdered him and I meant to do it to him. Um, you know, that, that's not what the whole issue is about. But it becomes so terribly confused when you don't have, see, uh, your standards. And you don't have your standards if you don't have a clear picture of who God is. So the confession really gets screwed up if, if the, the profound theology of who God is is all fouled up. You can't have this. Yes, Lynn? What I think is so precious to me, just hearing what you were talking about tonight, is that No. Because he loved us so much that it's relieving us from all the, the 
as you say, giving us a point of relieving it. But you can see God's love. Yeah. It, it's not a command. You must confess. But it's doing it for our sake. Yeah, it's, it's pedagogical, it's, it's teaching, but of course it's also in the sense, an abs, it becomes an absolute requirement as, as the, the Old Testament. These priests could not, you know, gee, I forgot to wash today and go in there. Sorry, it didn't work that way. Because God is who He is. He's also righteous. He loves us, but He's also righteous. And He has a standard, and we have to hit the standard. Well, how do we hit the standard when we're sinners? We can only do it if He forgives us. So, that's, that's the interplay there in this confession. Uh, the, the big idea about it is not some profound new thing. I mean, this has gone on. If you look at that verse chain, you'll see it's implicit in the whole Bible. And, of course, the greatest example is David. And what's interesting, in David's case, to further substantiate this problem about emotions, you know, and getting the standard right, is isn't it amazing to read in Psalm 51 for a man who committed adultery and murdered to say, against thee and thee only did I sin. Isn't that strange language? Against thee and thee only did I sin. Now, I'm sure David's not being... I mean, he must have been heartbroken when he realized he just killed one of his top officers, Uriah. I mean, here's a guy he sent out in the war and deliberately engineered the tactics to kill this guy. Now, he lost a trooper, a real good guy for him. And I'm sure he... He, he realized later, I mean, the first baby he had by Bathsheba died. Uh, and then, of course, he had the awful trauma with his sons. And the, one raped the sister and the other one killed the son. And then Absalom it started the whole nation in a revolt against him. And oh, it's just a mess, a continual mess that happened. So David's not saying that he's indifferent to the consequences. But what he is saying in Psalm 51 is that the sin ultimately is against God. And it helped me um, understand this. And I don't know why I didn't see this before, but one, years and years ago I was on a jury. And the, the lawyers were picking up the jury, you know, questioning you about this and that. And I forgot what was the problem, but they were, the judge had the lawyers explain the nature of an infraction of law. And what they pointed out was that so-and-so had done something to so-and-so, but the crime was against the state of Texas. And I got to think, oh, the crime against, wait a minute, I thought the crime's against the victim. No, the crime is against the lawgiver. And so our sins are a crime against the lawgiver. Yes, they hurt people, but the crime is against God, not against the people. I mean, it is a crime socially, I mean. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying to understand what David's driving at in that Psalm 51 when he says against thee and thee only, he's excluding Uriah, he's excluding Bathsheba, He's excluding the families involved. And you're saying, is he making light of that? No, he isn't making light of it, but he's acknowledging the focal point. So that Psalm 51 verse in that sequence of chain that I gave you, that Psalm 51 verse is very important because it defines the nature of confession. The confession is a confession of guilt against God. Now, 
that's not saying not to go and try to make it right with the person you've offended. But that act of going to try to make it right to the person you've offended is not the confession that's mentioned here. And also notice something else. There's not any intermediary in the confession. There's no inter- there's no you don't confess to somebody else who represents God. There's no intervention of a priest. And see that's that's interesting from the New Testament point of view because who are believers said to be in First Peter? Your chosen generation, a royal what? A royal priesthood. So there's the priesthood of the believer. And that was one of the doctrines that split Europe in half in the Reformation. You can imagine the power this had. If you think about it, imagine yourself having been raised all your life to believe that you had to go to confession to the priest or you could have no fellowship with God. Now, just imagine you were brought up this way. You did it. You saw your mama do it. You saw your daddy do it year after year after year. You did it. And then all of a sudden, someone who put these Protestants come up to you and tell you about, you don't have to go to priest. You go to God directly. As a Christian, who is it that indwells you? Holy Spirit. Who's praying for you to maintain that grace pipeline? Lord Jesus Christ. Whose righteousness causes you to have status anyway? It's his righteousness, not yours. So, you exercise your priesthood, your individual, personal priesthood, by making confession for your own sin. That's a, that's a monumental breakthrough. That's what's so, what was so liberating and freeing. Because, and that's what so scared church authorities. Because you see, religious establishments are, are sinful like any other kind of establishment. And one of the things every establishment does, at least everyone I've been associated with, always tries to perpetuate itself. Well, how do you perpetuate yourself? By getting a lock on the customer, on the market. How do you get a lock on the market religiously? By putting yourself as the in-between mediary between God and man. So the Protestant Reformation was a devastating blow to this when they dared to say that men and women could come to God privately in their own priesthood and make confession of sin. What a mind-blowing thing this was. And that's what, what was so scary about the Protestant Reformation. It, that doctrine alone, the priesthood of the believer at this point of confession, broke the stranglehold of the Roman Catholic Church in Europe. And it was, all, it was centered nothing more. Well, nothing more. Don't need any more. Um, but it was this whole episode that came, it was the focal point here. Is there any other questions that we had tonight? Yes, Joyce. Okay, does anybody have any questions about this week so far? Anybody? Okay. All right, we'll go back. Rewind. (laughs) When keeping in mind what you said about about how the Lord stretches and grows the church, usually by taking us out and giving us hard times, then all of the stuff that happened back in the turn of the century when, when we welcome and storefronts and things like that. Um, would you characterize that as the Lord actually growing the church through adversity, or would you characterize that as, um, you know, 
there's poor judgment on our part, and the Lord's going to work in spite of it? Or is it too soon to tell? I think partly the first and partly the third. Uh, I don't think it was a screw-up choice because, I mean, it was a screw-up in the liberals that made the screw-up. But um, there were a lot of godly people that saw the handwriting on the wall and they were just outmaneuvered. I mean, it wasn't like people didn't, uh, didn't stand up. I mean, that was precisely what really irritated the liberals. There were so many people standing up. The problem was, and this is a lesson why... You know, you've heard this complaint, I'm sure, in recent years. Why is it that the Christian groups can't get together and do something corporately? I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a residual suspicion that if we create some sort of super unified thing, we're going to lose it again. Because it's that flowing out, that memory of what happened in the 19th century when churches cooperated. They had uh, city rescue missions. I mean, all the social work done in the cities of America in the 19th century was done by Christians. Come on, you know. There wasn't any social welfare programs by the government at that point so much as it was Christians doing social work. And Christian churches united to do that social work. What fractured that? What fractured it was that the liberals were very, they were very skilled. They came in and they cut off the leadership. They did not bother to convert the pew. What they did is they perverted the educational process for pastors. They took over the seminaries. We lost all of our major seminaries. It was gone. All the books, all the historic materials, boom, gone. They, they wound up with it all. And it, it, so it was a takeover. And I, I think the lesson the Lord taught in those things is... Don't be so proud of your church institutions. It was almost a lesson that we Americans had to learn about the church that the Jews had to learn about their king. That their kings in the Old Testament, uh, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, were corrupt men. And they suffered at the hands of the king. Their own king, not the Gentile kings, their own kings became corrupt. And I think we've had to learn in this country because in the colonial period, we honored the church institutionally. The church was given a place of honor in the community. In New England, the church was the meeting place of the town. If you had a town meeting, where did you hold it? It wasn't a fire department. It didn't have fire departments. You had the church meeting. And, and so people honored that. And it was always taken as that so people were always members of this. And Aunt Tilda went to the church. And Uncle Joe went to it. And I went to it. And we've given uh, $50,000 of our family inheritance to the thing. And we don't want to leave it. And that was one of the arguments that people, that the fundamentalists caused. They came in, they, they started rupturing the missionary movement because they said, we're not going to send, we're not going to support missionaries in the field and deny the deity of Jesus. Come on. Well, well wait a minute. Yeah, those guys are doing good works out there in Lois Fabolia. If they don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't get my box. Sorry. Well, well you're de- being divisive. Now, that's not being Christian. You're upsetting the, the good works they're doing there. And you're making this doctrine uh, an issue? And you're rupturing a social program because of a doctrinal issue? Well, how divisive of you. See? Bigoted, narrow-minded. And I think the Lord used this to wake up the church to the fact that doctrine counts. And you've got to watch out for counterfeits. 
And I'm sorry, yeah, it's disruptive. And a lot of good ministries went down the drain because of the splits that were caused by this. People were hurt by it. Lots of people were hurt by it. I think the whole country was hurt by it. I think that's why we had a Great Depression, because of the fallout of that stuff that went on. So, you know, I can't prove it, but that's my own opinion. So, I think, Joyce, the true dimension of what went on is like all of history. You have to get a few centuries away from it to see what really was going on. But I think we're far enough away from it now to see... Like I said, that's why I brought in the writings last week to read to you, so you could read what these guys were saying and hear for yourselves. Yeah, but some of the and, and then we're not just yeah evolution's another one that's dividing churches, and um, but but every time the division happens. It's interesting because the people who are accused of dividing the church are always the people holding on to the historic position. Remember the quote I quoted last week of the Harvard, Dr. Kirsop Lake? What an incriminating quote. When here's the professor of history at Harvard University says that, well, the fundamentalists uh, differ from us, but I'll tell you one thing, it's, it's us who have departed from the historic faith, not them. What an admission for a, for a historian from Harvard University to admit that the fundamentalists are the ones that held on to it. Now, if we're holding on to something that the church held on to for centuries, how is it that we're the ones that are divisive? But it was such a slick job, and we're, politically and socially, it was slick. that They put a spin on it, and we turn out to be the bad guys. But, I mean, that's happened before in church history. So it's a lesson. I, I, I always bring that up somewhere in teaching because I like us all to remember where we are in our country. I don't, can't speak for other countries, but in America, we had a big revolution then. And, and it's still, we're experiencing the fallout from it. Any other questions? Okay, well, next time will be our last time for this fall or the spring. Um, and... Um, We'll, uh, we won't have any handouts because we've handed out everything. Uh, I'll try to remember to make that chart, though, and we'll f- hopefully finish up. Okay?